So Precious Lord was Martin Luther King Jr.'s favorite gospel spiritual song, and Mahalia Jackson would sing that song, and on Friday, just two days ago, as my cohort toured the Lorraine Motel Room where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, that song was playing over the speakers. Uh, it's a powerful, powerful song the, that our precious Lord will take our hand and walk with us and guide us through the, the hard times and the, the, the good times. Again, I'm, I'm so glad to be back with you this morning. I really did miss my Woodmont family, uh, and I'm so grateful again for the opportunity to go. And, and I want to share some of my experience with you before we dive into our text for this morning. I promise I'll try not to be like that dad that's like, you got to watch the slides, kids, from my last vacation. But uh, I think it'll help you get a sense of, of what we were doing, at least. The, the first part, is, this was my final residency, my final class. I'm done with classes forever and ever uh, for all time, which is great. Uh, exciting news. Thank you. We're excited about that. Morgan made a steak dinner for us last night to celebrate. We're really excited about it. I just had this little thing called a dissertation to do uh, for this next year that I'll be working on. But we started this final residency with a preaching workshop, and we, we took turns preaching in front of various homiletics professors, and they critiqued us. It was great, helpful feedback. And then we had a, a class on cross-cultural engagement, on reaching out across different cultural barriers. And then uh, we had a travel course. We started out Sunday evening, uh, last Sunday, and, and by the way, we are so blessed here to have Trey Heyman and uh, this amazing youth ministry. What a great job they did. Man. I got home Friday night, uh, just this past Friday, with a couple of guys in my cohort that were staying with us, and we watched the service, and it was just incredible. Youth, you guys did such a great job. Chris, I didn't know, man, that was, that was impressive. Yeah, that was impressive, all you guys and girls, and and Maddie and, and, and Maddie and Maggie uh, as well, leading in worship with Hunter. But, but Trey, your message was just excellent, man. Uh, you are uh, a called and gifted minister, so uh, be affirmed. We're, we're very blessed to have you uh, here at our church. So we started Sunday evening at Fisk University right here in town. And we were at Fisk Chapel. We took a tour of the whole campus. And if you've never been, I encourage you to go. There's some amazing artwork and architecture there. And we saw Jubilee Hall. But, but Fisk Chapel is really kind of the spiritual hub of the campus. And in that chapel, we heard uh, a sermon. There was a, a homiletics professor who was with us. So he, he handed out sermons for us preachers to preach in the pulpit where Dr. Martin Luther King and others had preached. So we heard these sermons delivered in their original physical context, which is such a powerful thing to, to hear the word proclaimed as Martin Luther King or whoever it was that was speaking would read this sermon and for us to just sit in that space that was a sacred, powerful space and absorb it was really uh, an amazing thing. And then we left at 6 a.m. on Monday morning for Birmingham and we took a tour of the 16th Street Baptist Church, where, as you know, in 1963, uh, a Ku, Ku Klux Klansman's uh, bomb went off and killed four little girls that were in the, in the restroom downstairs, right where the bomb went off uh, in, in 1963, that, which set off a, a, a huge wave of, of national discourse over civil rights. And just outside that bathroom, there's a little memorial plaque with, with four little girls' names on it. That's the plaque there. Um, and one of our students, my, one of my friends, read Martin Luther King's 
eulogy that he gave at their service right there at this memorial. And we, I don't think there was a dry eye among our, our, our cohort as he read this beautiful, theologically rich eulogy that Dr. Martin Luther King gave for the four little girls that were killed at 16th Street Baptist Church. And from there, we went on to, to Selma, Alabama, where we saw Brown Chapel, as you know, a famous historical church where lots of W.E.B. Du Bois, even in the 1800s, has spoke there, and, and Booker T. Washington and many others. And, and then, of course, Dr. Martin Luther King spoke there as well. And we also heard a sermon there in that setting. It wasn't a sermon. It was a speech by Malcolm X. Yeah, I don't know if you know this, but Malcolm X, there's a, a picture from the 60s. In 1965, got the people of Selma stirred up, uh, working with Coretta Scott King, um, to, to really fire up the town of, of Selma. We heard a reading from Ma Malcolm X in that chapel. That's him at Brown Chapel there. It was a really powerful uh, moment for us there. And then after he read the, the sermon or the speech, our docent, the guide there, said she started crying. And she said, I was sitting right there when Malcolm X spoke. I was sitting right there. And it brought back all these memories for her. And she was weeping and she told us about how she ran around the church trying to find blankets after the march over the bridge in Selma and had grabbed blankets to cover people who were trying to rip their clothes off because the tear gas was clinging to every fiber of their clothing. Powerful stuff. Living history, oral history that was passed down to me and my cohort there at Brown Chapel. And then finally on, on Friday, we heard Dr. King's final speech, which was delivered at the Mason Temple the Church of God in Christ. We have that picture, Melanie. Oh, that, that's it, Brown Chapel there. That's the Malcolm X speech. Here's Mason Temple, a uh, beautiful day on Friday in Memphis. It's, it's not a Masonic temple. The guy's name was Bishop Mason, Charles Mason, who founded it. And this is where Dr. Martin Luther King gave his last speech the night before he was assassinated on April 4th, 1968. So we went inside the, the, the chapel, and you can see it's this massive auditorium. And there, one of my best friends read... Dr. King's last speech, and he, he got really fired up, and he got really into it, and he said, I just want to do God's will, and he's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over. I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we, as a people, will get to the promised land. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And then he sat down, and we were just, again, emotional. It was such a powerful moment. We as Christians still have much work to do in this country, right? Let us remind ourselves this morning that, that just because we may have walked down the aisle somewhere, just because we may have been dunked somewhere in a baptistry or sprinkled, doesn't mean that there is not work for us to do for the kingdom now in your and my current context in which the Lord has placed us. Our faith must bear fruit, right? It's the evidence of the faith that's in us. It's, it's manifested in good works that we bring about for the sake of the kingdom in our everyday lives in the here and now. We know that James, the brother of Jesus, wrote in, in his book that faith without works is what? Dead. It's dead. It's useless. It's not good for anything. And Jesus Christ himself told us that the, the weightier matters of the law, the really important laws of the Old Testament, are this, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. In order to accomplish those things, we have to act. 
They require action, don't they? That's what I kept thinking over and over again last week is we've got to do something. And action is seldom easy, is it? It's seldom comfortable. It requires sacrifice on our part. We know that God's word says that through Jesus Christ, we as Christians have been given a ministry of reconciliation. We've been called to bring those that are divided together, and that requires doing something. Action is not easy. Today's text, we're going to look at a scene from the end of Matthew. I know we're well into Mark now for the last 10 days we've been in Mark, but I want, this is such a good text for us today as we celebrate communion and the Lord's Supper. As we look at Jesus Christ himself, our Lord, as he was in the garden before his great act of, of obedience that was such a hard work for him to do, we're going to examine that this morning as we see the action that he must take that required sacrifice of the ultimate kind. You know that at this point in Matthew, in chapter 26, where we're reading today, that the shame and pain of betrayal was about to happen. We know that the physical pain of a crucifixion was weighing heavily upon Christ. He knew what was coming. He knew what he was facing. He knew that he would go through a corrupt trial and then walk through a, a mocking crowd of, of witnesses down the streets of Jerusalem all the way to, to Golgotha as he was prepared to be crucified. So let's read this morning from Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46. May we stand this morning in honor of God's word. Then Jesus went with them, his disciples, to a place called Gethsemane, the garden on the Mount of Olives. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. You can have a seat. These are the words of the Lord for the people of God. This is an incredible scene, isn't it? Here we see Christ before his crucifixion, kneeling in the garden, falling on his face right before he's betrayed by Judas and then arrested and handed over to the authorities of Rome. 
He knows what God's asked him to do, right? So he didn't bring the disciples here to the garden to like make small talk or play some cards or just kind of shoot the breeze, did he? No. Jesus knows the importance of preparation, of prayer as preparation. He knows that he needs to get away with his disciples in order to get spiritually prepared for the work that is ahead of him, for the action that he must take. The text says that he's sorrowful and that he's deeply troubled. So he takes his inner circle, his his best friends, Peter and and James and John, and asks them to just stay up with him. That's all he asks. Just stay up with me. If you've ever been with someone who's sorrowful and troubled, then you know the importance of staying with them. You don't have to have the words to say. You know, I've made a lot of hospital visits recently with Richard, and this guy's a master of hospital visits. He's done... A few, quite a few of them. And a lot of times, it's not even a matter of what he says, it's just being there. Just being present with folks is what matters. Just being, showing up. So all Jesus asks of his inner circle is just to be with him and be present. And then he falls on his face. He's incapable of standing any longer. And he prays, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. You know that Jesus is one with the Father and the Holy Spirit and the unity of the Holy Trinity, right? So he knows all along what the plan is. He knows where this is going. But now that the moment is at hand, as he says, his flesh, just like Peter's flesh, is growing weak. Peter's flesh grew so weak that he fell asleep. Jesus was fully God, yes, but he was also fully human. And at this point, the cup is set before him. And he says, may it pass, God, if it's possible. But eventually he says, "It not my will, but yours be done. And then he cries out a second time, my father, if this can't pass unless I drink it, then I'll do it. I will take the cup and I will drink it if it's what must happen. Let it be so. He's willing to drink the cup that's set before him. You know, cups in the Old Testament usually had to do with images of, of God's wrath, of God's pouring out his anger. Psalm chapter 11 says that for the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Isaiah 57, in a verse that really reminds us of this scene here in Gethsemane, says, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl the cup of staggering. You see, the the death that Jesus is going to die here is not just physically agonizing, torturous death. It's also a spiritually agonizing death because he was about to take on the sins of the world, which God abhors. The high and holy God, in his love for the world, tries to destroy all that is sinful because he knows what's best for the world. Sin seeks to kill and steal and destroy. Jesus came to give us life to the fullest. So the Lord pours out his wrath against sin. It's in his nature. He can't abide sin. He can't stand it. His wrath is poured out against it. And Jesus was about to endure that kind of wrath on the cross as the sins of the cosmos are laid on his shoulders on the cross. It was a death that absorbed all the wrath against sin. This is the cup that was set before Christ. Could he drink the cup? Could you? 
In another scene, a little bit before this, Jesus asked that very question to James and John and to their mother. Before his disciples and he had entered into Jerusalem, there's this interesting little story in which Jesus asked the question, can you drink the cup? It's the title of a book by Henry Nouwen that Trey and I had to read when we were in college in, in Dr. Ben Curtis's class. Powerful little volume. I encourage you to, to get it. It says this in Matthew 20, chapter tw uh, 20, verses 20 through 22. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to Christ with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you, and the you here is plural, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Don't you think that James and John at this point would have been like, cool it, mom. All right, you're embarrassing us with Jesus. Cool it with this whole, can they be the first? Can they have the places of honor? Can, can they be special in your kingdom kind of thing? But Jesus takes this kind of silly request from the mother and turns it into a deadly serious moment. He's, he looks at the mother and the boys and he asks them, are you able to drink the cup? You have no idea what the cup means. You have no idea what you're asking for because the cup that's set before me is not a glamorous cup. The cup that's set before me is not a cup of honor or privilege or esteem. The cup that's set before me is not one of comfort or luxury or ease. The cup that's set before me is the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering that I'm about to walk. Can you drink that cup? Is that the cup that you are wanting to drink? You know, recently, David Platt and a lot of other prophetic voices have called out the, the ludicrousy of the, the American dream, the so-called American dream. They've, they've shown us that, that it's really an empty reality, that this idea of chasing after the, the two nice cars and the 2.5 children and the, the dog in the yard and the, the Hawaii vacation, all those things are really not worth chasing after. And I've told this before, this illustration, but have you ever seen a dog chase a car? I, I, it's funny to watch a dog chase a car. They love to tear off. It looks like it's so much fun chasing the car. But what if the dog actually catches the car? Not so fun then, right? I think... The American dream is like that, that so many Americans who have achieved the, the, the two nice cars and the 2.5 kids and the Hawaiian vacation have said, really, this is it? It's not what I thought it would be because it's an empty promise. Life is not meant to be about chasing the American dream. Life is meant to be about the cup of Christ. True, abundant, full life is found in drinking to the dregs, the cup of Christ and dying to ourselves. Jesus tells us this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 39. He says, whoever would find his life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Right? Whoever finds their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will really find true, full life. You want to find your life today? Give it away for the sake of Christ. 
Many of you know the, the story of, of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a, a German theologian and a pastor and a seminary professor who was actually in the United States studying in New York at Columbia Seminary when Hitler really rose to power in the early 1930s. And instead of staying where he could in the comfort and ease of the United States, chose instead to go back to his home, to be present with his people, to resist the tide of evil in Germany, and it cost him his life. And you, you may know that, that Dietrich Bonhoeffer is probably most well-known for one line. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Have you heard that before? When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It's a famous line, but I want you to hear this morning the context in which he says that line. It's from a book called The Cost of Discipleship. These words are prophetic, knowing that Dietrich Bonhoeffer would soon be martyred for his faith. Two weeks before American troops came into Flossenburg and, and liberated the concentration camp there, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hung on the orders of Adolf Hitler because of his resistance to what Hitler was doing. He writes this in The Cost of Discipleship. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every person must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old self which is the result of the encounter with Christ. When you meet Christ, you give up your old self and put on the new. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. That's what baptism's all about, right? You're buried to your old self and you're raised into a whole new kind of life. As we embark upon discipleship, that means following Christ, becoming like him, we surrender ourselves to Christ. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life. No, it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. This is what the Lord's Supper is all about. The cross is the beginning of discipleship, not the end. It may be a death like that of the first disciples, but when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like the first disciples who had to leave home and work in order to follow him. Or it may be a death like Martin Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death for all of us every time. Death in Jesus Christ. Death of the old self at the call of Christ. It's powerful stuff, isn't it? That's what the cup of Christ represents this morning. This is what communion is all about. It's the call to die to yourself and to leave everything behind and consider it all rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ and following him as Lord and Savior of your life. It will not be easy, I promise you. It will not be comfortable. <clears throat> it will not come with honor or respect from those around you necessarily, but it is the way of flourishing it is the way of the abundant life that God uses for our good and for his glory in the church and elsewhere. It will be a via dolorosa. It will be a way of suffering in this life, but we hold on to the hope as Christians that it will lead to eternal life and flourishing in this life and the life to come. So the question for us today is this. 
Can you drink the cup? I don't know what's going on in your heart today, but God does. Maybe your heart is like Christ in the garden. Maybe you're deeply troubled and sorrowful today. Maybe your spirit is willing today, but you've seen over and over again just how weak your flesh actually is. Maybe for you this morning, you need to hear this good news that to, to hold the cup and to lift it and to drink the cup is a call to come and die. And that in dying to your flesh, it will then no longer have power over you. You'll be free to suffer knowing that your suffering is producing something greater than yourself. Our suffering is not in vain. Can you drink the cup? Many of you know the role that the, the small town of Selma, Alabama played in the struggle for civil rights in March of 1965. When we were at Brown Chapel, we heard all about it when we were in Selma. And we had the opportunity, my cohort, to gather two by two, just like the original march on March 3rd, 1965, for civil rights on the way to Montgomery. And we walked across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. We have a picture of it. I took that on uh, Monday of last week. As we walked across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, many of you know this is the famous site of what was now known as, as Bloody Sunday. You know that in 1965, the, the leaders of the Southern Christian uh, Leadership Conference, which was Martin Luther King's organization, worked with other organizations like John Lewis's Student Nonviol Nonviolent Coordinating Committee to organize this march from Selma, which is an incredibly racist and, and, and you know, oppressive town, all the way to Montgomery, 50 miles, 54 miles, to demand their basic constitutionally guaranteed right to vote that they had been so long denied. And so the, the leaders gather in Brown Chapel and they drew straws, we know from firsthand accounts, to see who would be in the front of the march. Martin Luther King was, was out speaking at another conference in New York, so he couldn't be there. So they drew straws and the short straw fell to a guy named Hosea Williams. He was a World War II vet and a, a, a minister, ordained minister. And so he agreed to lead the march with John Lewis at his side. We have a picture of that, I think, too, Melanie. Oh, this guy's Fred Gray. Go to the, the one of the, the 60s, the, the black and white. There's John Lewis walking across the bridge. I think we have another shot of that too, Melanie. There they are. That's Hosea Williams and John Lewis. This is how we walked two by two coming across the bridge. And you know that when they got to the end of the bridge, you see the, the next picture, Melanie, they met a line of state troopers. When they got to the end of the bridge, there was a line of state troopers that said, this is an illegal gathering. Turn around and go home. And within a matter of seconds, the troopers advanced, and Lewis and Hosea Williams stood completely still, committed to nonviolence. And as they advanced, keep going, Melanie, they, they started to push them, and as the, the, the protesters started to run and turn around, that's when everything broke loose, and, and billy clubs started swinging, and nightsticks, and, and John Lewis was beaten within inches of his life, and Hosea Williams and, and many others were, were tear-gassed, and beaten severely as they ran back towards Brown Chapel. That day, that is Bloody Sunday, was seared into the nation's conscience at that time. But the very next day, on Monday, the, the guy that was in the picture with me, go back to that picture, Melanie, this is Fred Gray. He was an attorney, and he filed a suit against the state of Alabama in order to have state protection from the troopers to allow them to march peacefully and legally from Selma to Montgomery. 
And the judge said, I'll grant you the right to do that. And within weeks, they marched successfully into Montgomery, led by Dr. Martin Luther King this time. And when they arrived at the state capitol, Dr. King addressed a crowd of 25,000 people. Show that picture there, Melanie. He addressed this huge crowd from the, the, the bed of an 18-wheeler and, and told them that it wouldn't be long until they would have their civil rights granted to them. And sure enough, a few months later, Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act into law. You see, Hosea Williams and John Lewis knew that they would probably be attacked. They knew that this was a way of suffering, a Via Dolorosa, but they had made up their minds to walk across that bridge. And no matter what, they would not fight back. Why would they willingly walk into this kind of suffering? Because they believed in something greater than themselves. They had died to the way of life that said, do what's comfortable, do what's best for you. They had instead been reborn into the kind of life that gives itself away for something greater. Can you drink the cup that they drink? You know, Williams and Lewis and all the other civil rights leaders knew that suffering is never wasted. It produces great things. Let's close with this. Romans 5, 3 and 4 says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Are you willing? Are you able to drink the cup of Christ and rejoice in those sufferings today? Are you able to embrace the call to come and die, to lay down all that you are at the feet of Christ today for the sake of Christ? That's the question for you today as we move into this time of communion. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together today at this table. You know that communion means to unite together with Christ as one body. It's a sacred ordinance that, that Christ himself instituted at the Last Supper. It's a time for reflection. The Bible tells us in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on themselves. So ask God now to search you. We're going to sing a hymn together. And you can stay seated during this time as we sing. But ask the Lord to, to search you and know you, to see if there's anything wicked in you that needs to be dealt with this morning. What's hindering you from coming to the table honestly this morning? Maybe you're a Christian and, and you need to repent of chasing after the car. Maybe you've been looking to obtain the comfort and the ease of the American dream. Maybe you have some unconfessed sin that's festering away in your life that you need to deal with today. Or maybe you know that God's called you to suffer and, and you've been resisting it. Maybe today's the, the day you say, God, I'm willing to drink the cup that's before me. Whatever it is that you need to do, this is a time to deal with that now as we sing. Let's pray before we stand and sing. Lord God, we thank you for the cup that you drank on our behalf. We thank you for, for taking the cup that we couldn't drink and that you bore the sin of the world on your shoulders so that we could be free from the bondage and decay of sin, so that we could be made right before high and holy God. Such knowledge is too wonderful for us. Lord, I pray that this morning you would convict us of our lives of comfort and ease. Help us to go out willingly to suffer 
whatever the call may be, whether it's to adopt a child or whether it's to raise a child or whether it's to give sacrificially of our time, our talent, or our treasure at Woodmont or beyond. Maybe you, you want us to mentor someone. Maybe you want us to enter into a friendship with someone that's hard to be friends with. God, whatever it is this morning, I pray that you would let us know your will for us today. We love you. We pray this in your high and your holy name, the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.